Chapter Two of To London Town. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. To London Town by Arthur Morrison. Chapter Two. For some while, a problem had confronted the inmates of the cottage, and now it was ever with them the choice of a trade for Johnny. The situation of the cottage itself made the main difficulty. There was a walk of two miles to the nearest railway station, and then London was twelve miles off. It was in London the trades were learnt. But to get there? Here the family must stay, for here was the cottage, which cost no rent, for the old man had bought it with his little savings. Moreover, here also were the butterflies and the moths, which meant butter to the dry bread of the little pension. And here was the garden. To part with Johnny altogether was more than his mother could face, and indeed, what was to pay for his lodging and keep? The moths and butterflies could be no living for Johnny. To begin with, though, he was always ready to help in the hatching, killing, setting, and what not. He was no born insect hunter like his grandfather, and then the old man had long realized that the forest was growing a poorer and poorer hunting ground each year, and must some day, after he was dead, he hoped, be no longer worth working. People were hard on the hawks, so that the insect-eating birds multiplied apace, and butterflies were fewer. And there was something else, or so it seemed some subtle influence from the great smoky province that lay to the southwest. For London grew and grew, and washed nearer and still nearer its scummy edge of barren brickbats and clinkers. It had passed Stratford long since, and had nearly reached Leighton. And though Leighton was eight miles off, still the advancing town sends something before it, an odor a subtle principle that drove off the butterflies. The old man had once taken the emperor moth at Stratford in a place long covered with a row of grimy little houses. Now the emperor was none too easy to find in the thickest of the woodland. And indeed, when the wind came from the southwest, the air seemed less clear in the old man's eyes than was its wont a dozen years back. True, many amateurs came with nets, boys from boarding schools thereabout chiefly, and did not complain. But he who by trade had noted day by day for many years the forest's produce in egg, larva, pupa, and imago saw and knew the change, so that butterflies being beyond possibility as Johnny's trade, his grandfather naturally bethought him of the one other he himself was familiar with, and spoke of the post office. He knew the postmaster at Lofton, and the postmasters at other of the villages about the forest. By making a little interest, Johnny might take the next vacancy as messenger. But the prospect did not tempt the boy. He protested, and it was almost his sole contribution to the daily discussion that he wanted to make something. And there was little doubt, if one might judge from the unpleasing ships and figures in colored chalks, wherewith he defaced whatever offered a fair surface, 
that he would most like to make pictures. He never urged the choice in plain terms, for that were hopeless, but both his mother and his grandfather condemned it in all respects as though he did. There's a good deal more caterpillar than butterfly in this life for the likes of us, my boy, the old man would say as he labored at his setting. Making pictures and such is all very well, but we can't always choose our own line. I've been a lucky man in my time, thank God. The insects was my hobby long fore I made any money of em. Your poor grandmother that you never saw. A lot of good them moths and grubs'll be for you, she used to say. Why not bees, as you can make something out of? And Haskins, that took the next round to mine. He kept bees. But I began selling a few specimens to gentlemen here and there, and then more. And after that I took em to London regular, same as now. It ain't as good as it was, and it's going to be worse but I'm in hopes that it'll last my time out. It was because I was carrying letters here that I had the chance of doing it at all. If you was to carry em yourself, you'd be able to do something else, too. These, perhaps. A good few men's boots. But we're a bit off the villages here. Here's the house, yours and your mother's, when I'm gone, and I'm sixty-nine and it's healthier and cleaner than London. You could put up a little bit of glass in the garden and grow tomatoes and cucumbers, them and fowls. You could keep fowls. Would sell very well to the gentlefolk. And they all know the postman. Wages ain't high, but you live cheap here with no rent. And there's a pension, perhaps. That's your line. Depend on it, Johnny but I should like a trade where I can make something, the boy would answer wistfully. I really should, Grandad. Ah, with a shake of the head, make what? I doubt what you mean in pictures. You must get that notion out of your head, Johnny. Some of them as make em may do well, but most awful. I see em in London often, drawing on the pavement, regular clever ones, too, doing mackerel and bits of salmon splendid, and likenesses o' the queen, and sunsets with the sky shaded beautiful. Beggin, regular beggin, with a cap out for coppers, and help-gifted poverty wrote in chalk. That won't do, you know, Johnny. The boy's mother felt for him an indefinite ambition not to be realized by a life of letter-carrying, though picture-making she favored as little as did the old man. But there was the situation of the cottage, a hindrance they could see no way to overcome. This being so, they left it for the time and betook themselves to smaller difficulties. Putting the letter-carrying aside for the moment, and forgetting distance as an obstacle, what trades were there to choose from? Truly a good many. And that none should be missed, Johnny's grandfather took paper and pencil and walked to Woodford, where he begged use of a London directory and read through all the trades, from absorbent cotton-wool manufacturers to zincographic printers, making a laborious list as he went. 
omitting with some reluctance such items as bankers, brokers, stock and share, merchants, patentees, and physicians, and hesitating a little over such as aeronauts and shive-turners. The task filled a large part of three days of uncommonly hard work, and old David May finished his list in mental bedevilment. What was a shive-turner? Indeed, for that matter, what was an ammeter? The list did but multiply confusion and divide counsel. Nan May sang less at her housework now, thinking of what she could remember of the trades that began with absorbent cotton wool manufacture and ended with zincographic printing. Little Bess neglected the bookshelf and pored over the crabbed catalogue with earnest incomprehension. It afflicted Johnny himself with a feeling akin to terror for which he found it hard to account. The arena of the struggle for bread was so vast, and he so small a combatant to choose a way into the scrimmage. More, it seemed, all so unattractive. There could be little to envy in the daily life of a seed-crusher or a court-plaster-maker. But the old man would pin a sheet of the list to the wall, and study it while he worked within doors, full of patience and simple courage. Bacon powder maker, he would call aloud to whomever it might reach. How's that? That's making something. Sometimes Bob Smallpiece, the forest keeper, would look in on his way by the cottage and be consulted. Bob was an immense being in much leather and velveteen, with a face like a long-kept pippin. When he first came to the forest years back, his amiable peeps into the house may have been prompted by professional considerations. For it was his habit to keep an eye on solitary cottages in his walk, cottages wherein it had once or twice been his luck to spy by surprise some furry little heap that a poke of his ash stick had separated into dead rabbits. Indeed, had old May's taste lain that way, Nothing would have been easier for him than to set a snare or two at night as he hunted his moths. But soon the keeper found that this one at least of the cottages thereabouts was no poacher, and then his greetings were as friendly as they seemed. As to Johnny's trade, he had few ideas beyond one that butchers did very well in London, his sister having married one. And what a shive-turner or an ammeter might be, he knew no more than his stick. But he knew well enough what a poacher was, as also perhaps did the stick, if contact could teach it. And he counseled that the boy be kept away from certain lots, as the Blandy lot, the Honeywell lot, and the Hayes lot, who would do him no good. The old butterfly hunter knew these lots very well on his own account, and his perpetual gropings about banks and undergrowth made him no friends among them. They would scarce believe, even after long experience, that grubs alone accounted for his activity, and truly a man with a government pension who affected scientific tastes, who lived a clean life, who was called Mr. May by keepers, 
and who, moreover, had such uncommon opportunities of witnessing what passed in the woods, might well be an object of suspicion. In simple truth, the village loafers had small conception of the old man's knowledge of their behavior among the rabbit burrows. He knew the woods as they knew the innards of a quart pot, and his eyes, aged as they might be, were trained by years of search for things well-nigh invisible amid grass, leaves, and undergrowths. He could have found their wires blindfold, and he knew Joe Blandy's wires from Amos Honeywell's better than Joe and Amos themselves. But of all this he said nothing, holding himself a strict neutral, and judging it best never to seem too knowing. Still it was the fact that when the lots were periodically weeded of members, caught with disjointable guns, wire nooses, or dead things furred or feathered, those left behind were apt to link circumstances together and to regard the old man with doubt and ill favor. Once indeed he hung in doubt for days, much tempted to carry a hint to Bob Smallpiece of a peculiarly foul and barbarous manner of deer-stealing, wherein figured a tied fawn, an anxious doe, a heavy stone, a broken leg, and a cut throat. But it chanced that the keeper was otherwise aware, and old May's doubt was determined by news that the thief wailed and gory, for he had made a fight for it, had been brought to the police cells with a dripping doe on a truck behind him. Even now as Bob Smallpiece grinned in at the cottage door, one saw the gap where two teeth had gone in that up-and-downer. No, said the keeper. It won't do the boy no good to let him knock about with nothing to do. About here specially. Boys that knocks about this part mostly gets in with them lots as we've been speaking of. Something about as bad. Ain't there no gentleman here about or give him a job? I'd like him to learn a trade, the old man said anxiously. But I don't see how. It's always something to stand by, is a trade, and it's what he wants. Wants to make something. That's the way he puts it. Else I'd say post office, same as me. His father was in the engineering, remarked Mrs. May, who had arrived at the door with certain sticks of rhubarb from the garden. I'd like him to go to that, I think. But he can't from here. Bob Smallpiece knew nothing of engineering, and little more of the, any of the several trades read out from the list pinned to the window frame, near which the old man worked at a setting stick. And presently he departed on his walk. Bessie at the casement above saw him swing away toward the glen, lifting his stick in recognition of Johnny, who bore a bundle of dead sticks homeward. Johnny's mother peeled and cut the rhubarb, revolving impossible expedients for bridging the space between them and London, the space that looked so small on the map, but was so great an obstacle to their purposes, and so wide a division between the two modes of life she knew. Johnny's grandfather pinned and strapped deftly, deep in thought, presently looking up. It beats me, he said 
fearful of ignoring some good thing in trades, to guess what a shive-turner is. End of chapter 2 Recording by John Brandon